Chapter 21 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Snow Owl. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 21 A Compact and a Warning. In the ensuing days of industrious pleasure, Cordelia glowered inwardly whenever she thought of that scene in the sunken garden, and she thought of it often. To be proposed to by such a man as Mitchell? The effrontery of it! And topping that insult, to have him laugh in her face while he proposed! It was a habit among her girlfriends, dating back to the old days of Harcourt Hall, to talk among themselves with an excitement subdued to indifference, first swearing the confidants to secrecy, which they hoped would not be kept, of their aspiring love affairs, their conquests, their proposals. Well, here was one proposal no one would ever hear her brag about. Her inclination toward Mitchell, at its intensest, was an itch to be his murderess. In her angered and contemptuous thinking, there was an aspect of the situation that never crossed the border of her mind. If one of Mitchell's objects had been, as he had proclaimed, to make her think of him, he had in that purpose been an unmitigated success. Cordelia had been proposed to by many men, all of them desirable men, whom she had pleasantly refused. But never had she thought so much, and so intensely, of any rejected suitor as of the provocatively smiling Mitchell. In her less indignant moods, her mind would drift to the story Mitchell had told her in the sunken garden. The more she considered the explanation of his mystery, the more commonplace and uninteresting did the man in his story seem to be. Just so do all mysterious phenomena sink to insignificance in the human mind after they have received the mortal blow of an unmysterious and perfectly natural solution. After all, the thing was just as Mitchell had said. He had gone to work for exactly the same reason as any other servant, for wages. And where was there any romance in a servant going to work for wages. Yes, aside from his audacity and a certain glib trick of the tongue, the man was utterly commonplace, negligible. By degrees, more from the operations of the subconscious than from any reasoned comparison, she had become aware of elements of similarity between his story and her own. Both had received unexpected financial blows. Both had had to meet a financial emergency, or go under. Both had met their emergency by work, he as a servant, she by the valuable exercise of higher powers. So he thought she had never known the pinch and fear of the lack of money. If he only knew the truth of how she had been pinched and how she had worked. She laughed grimly whenever she thought of this. She was sure she despised and hated him. He was outrageously presumptuous. She decided to put him out of her mind. Thank heavens, there was little chance of her meeting him again. 
Despite what people had said in their first surprise at learning he was not a butler by long descent, they, after all, would hardly go so far as to invite him to their houses, and if they did, he probably had enough ordinary pride and sense of his own proper place to refuse their invitations. Gladys's was the only house where he was likely to be. Gladys wouldn't dare refuse to let him come. And, of course, there was Francois to draw him to Rolling Meadows. She'd go to Rolling Meadows as little as possible, and when she did, she'd go prepared to keep Mitchell very coldly in his place. He was permanently out of her world, out of her life. That was one comfort. And having decided that he was to be kept out of her mind, being happy that he was closed out of her world, she was naturally somewhat disconcerted and infuriated when out driving with Jerry, and when Jerry was chatting along as smoothly as his purring motor, and when Jerry would suddenly check his pleasant monologue with, Don't you think so, Cordelia? It was somewhat infuriating to be thus jerked back to herself, and the consciousness that her hands were angrily clenched, and that for some time she had been seeing only the whimsically smiling face of a man who was explaining away his unmysterious mystery. She only thought of him because he was so exasperating. That was it. Time would make her indifferent to such irritations. He really was an incident that was closed. Rather, an incident that really had never been. Time would thoroughly erase him. While life, except for these irritating eruptions of Mitchell in her mind, was sweeping onward for Cordelia with thrilling eventlessness toward an ever more certain consummation. Mr. Franklin was regarding this development of her affairs with no such content, and he had no such willingness to let matters take their own course, happy in the certainty that they would eventually drift into the harbor of his desire. He was the captain of his soul and of his fortune. He did not like the set of the tide, nor the looks of certain reefs that were lifting out of the sea. It was his part to stand unintermittently on watch and do some very expert steering. Of course, socially, he was sailing in the right direction, and sailing smoothly and rapidly. With this aspect of his situation, he was satisfied. Tremendously so. But he was not pleased with the manner in which the lines of Cordelia's and Jerry's lives were moving, undeviatingly, toward an intersection, a confluence. He could terminate this affair, could turn Cordelia from her course, so that there would be no intersection. Of this he had no doubt, but he recognized that limitations were now upon what he might have done, and upon what he desired to do. He was not free to use his full wits, his full powers. He could not injure Cordelia, his future wife, in public esteem, as there was danger of his doing if he used all his power, and there should be an attending mishap. A limitation which he recognized even more clearly was that passion was a most treacherous impediment to clear, infallible thinking. He was still somewhat dazed by the wholly unexpected fact that he was in love with Cordelia, that his personal plans involving Cordelia, first conceived with a cool mind quick to see and calculate an advantage, were now captured and dominated by the first love of his life, 
a furiously passionate love. He was wildly jealous of Jerry Plimpton. He recognized that and knew jealousy to be a weakness in any mind that sought to be cool and balanced. He realized that he was not fully competent, and that realization made him hold himself in restraint, made him cautious. He therefore decided that he would wait. Time might serve him better than he could serve himself. Accident, misunderstanding, temper might end her affair with Jerry. They might quarrel. Seemingly prospering courtships were forever being abruptly terminated. Yes, he would hold back for that chance. Cordelia, Jackie, Gladys, Jerry Plimpton, his partner Kenmore, the others who saw Franklin during this period, never suspected from his pleasant, composed face the torture of jealousy, of unaccustomed indecision and inaction that were tearing at his heart. One decision he did reach, since he hoped to win Cordelia without resorting to extremes, and since eventually she was going to accept him anyhow, it would be the part of wisdom to acquaint her now with his attitude. This would give her time to grow accustomed to him as a suitor, and if he were considerately attentive, as he intended being, it would make her final turning to him all the easier. Two evenings after he formulated this decision, which chanced to be just two days after Mitchell's proposal to Cordelia, he motored out to Jackie's and offered himself in marriage. He told his love extremely well, simply, with feeling. His was the advantage of being a most unusual actor, who in this instance was an actor tremendously in earnest. Cordelia was surprised and genuinely pained. Whatever her faults, she had never led men on and had never taken pleasure in giving the hurt of a no to a proposal. Excepting, of course, Mitchell. His proposal she had not dignified by giving it a refusal. I had no idea you felt toward me in any such way she said honestly. Of course I'm complimented. It seems trite to tell you that. But I'm sorry. I don't feel that way toward you. Excuse my boldness in asking it. But do you feel that way toward any other man? He pressed with loverly eagerness. No, I've no right to ask that. But may I ask this? Have you given your promise to any other man? No. Then I shall keep on hoping, he said. Please don't, she begged in distress. I'm sure it will not make any difference. And besides, it will be rather embarrassing in our business relations. It will make no difference whatever in our business arrangements, he assured her. I trust that you consider me enough of a gentleman to believe that I would not take advantage of our business relations to force my love upon you. He smiled wanly, the smile of a brave man who is suffering anguish, yet smiles to lessen the other's pain. Even though you tell me there is no hope, I shall still go on hoping. I can't help it. She was deeply moved, even thrilled. She would never accept him, of course. But here was a proposal that was an honor. 
long after franklin had bowed in brave smiling pain over her hand and had driven away into the night she tingled with pity and pride inevitably she compared the two proposals so recently made her the latter respecting anguished of a brave man who hoped hopelessly on the former of a man who felt no more deeply who respected her no more highly than to turn his proposal into a grinning jest mr franklin was a gentleman she was going to be kind to him and considerate just as kind as she could be without awakening the misapprehension that her kindness was love as for mr franklin he drove through the night with no such pang in his heart as had shone upon his face the proposal had gone off even better than he had expected the seed was sown he would cultivate it with the always appealing attention of a heart that hides its heartbreak time would help on its growth and there were other stimulants in reserve he was a lover well content on taking further thought it occurred to mr franklin that since he had decided it was wisdom to bide his time and use only his slow and less powerful measures he had been overlooking very considerable possibilities represented by gladys careful consideration of these possibilities developed no concrete practical plan nevertheless on the sunday afternoon following his proposal to cordelia he motored out to rolling meadows mitchell was there but he was down at the beach with francois and esther stevens so franklin very easily managed a confidential session with gladys he approached the matter of his visit with directness and every appearance of an impressive frankness miss norworth i am going to speak openly with you I am going to put all my cards face up upon the table. When you and I reached our little understanding, by which it was agreed that I was to serve you nominally as your attorney, I then remarked that I hoped the time might come when I might serve you in fact, if not serve you as your attorney, then serve you as a friend. I believe that such a time has now arrived." and on the other hand a situation has developed in which i believe you can serve me we have certain interests in common i suggest that we join forces help each other and thereby help ourselves he had roused her to excited eagerness yes of course if we can really help each other what are the interests we have in common two individuals mr plimpton and miss marlowe instantly her green eyes were glittering you should know how much interest i have in cordelia marlowe pardon me you are interested in miss marlowe and i shall show you how in just a moment i suggested that we be very frank i shall first be frank regarding myself miss norworth i am in love with miss marlowe and i have very real hope that she will some day marry me gladys stared well she ejaculated well i never guessed it that certainly is news you've asked her yes what did she say this very eagerly she refused me but very kindly and without being egotistical i have reason to believe she will some day answer differently 
Oh, no, she won't, Gladys exclaimed bitterly. She's got Jerry Plimpton hooked, and you can just bet she'll hang on to Jerry Plimpton. I admit Mr. Plimpton is my difficulty, and his name naturally brings up the other half of my proposition. I have been very frank about myself, Miss Norworth. Now I'm going to be equally frank about you, even though I may seem presumptuous and intrusive. I know that you feel toward Mr. Plimpton exactly as I feel toward Miss Marlowe. You want to marry him. Now don't be angry. Don't feel that modesty requires you to deny this. We're both human. We want what we want, and there's no reason we shouldn't have what we want if we can get it. Gladys regarded him noncommittally. It irked her pride to admit she wanted a man with whom another woman had walked off. What's next? she asked. You see, our situations are identical. Identical except for the one detail that a different person represents the difficulty in each case. If Mr. Plimpton were eliminated, I could more easily attain my desire. If Miss Marlowe were eliminated, I am certain Mr. Plimpton would swing straight to you. If I marry Miss Marlowe, your problem is solved. Mine is solved if you marry Mr. Plimpton. To repeat, our interests are identical. Our first common effort should be to break off the affair between Mr. Plimpton and Miss Marlowe. You agree in that, I presume? Gladys did not agree. At least not in words. To say that she cared for anyone who apparently was more interested in Cordelia Marlowe, that was too much. But growing fury was in her eyes. Then you want Mr. Plimpton to marry Miss Marlowe? He prodded her gently. At this she exploded. I do not marry him through having made herself attractive with my money. Those new clothes. My money paid for them. That smarten-up car. My money paid for it. She's getting him, and she's making me pay for him for her. Then you are willing to join efforts to break the affair off? I'll join you in anything to break it off. But how are we going to do it? There, Mr. Franklin had admitted to himself, was indeed the rub. But he did not wish to admit as much to Gladys. He was hoping that somehow she would prove the desired means. We'll find a way, he assured her confidently. Our first step was to reach this understanding, that in itself we must consider a very great accomplishment. He regarded her seriously, slowly nodding his head for emphasis. A very great accomplishment, indeed. And then after a moment's apparent meditation of their problem, he asked, I wonder if any method had occurred to you by which you might uh, influence Mr. Plimpton away from Miss Marlowe? Indeed there has, she cried, and one that would work. In his quick interest, he leaned sharply forward. Yes, and what? Tell Jerry Plimpton, straight out, where and how she's getting that money she's spending. From me, and blackmail. Wouldn't he drop her quick when he learned that? And say, in the excitement of a fresh idea, she gripped his hand. 
You just said we'd work together, back each other up. Right here's where we fit in together. You know all about her getting that money from me, for she gets it through you. Why, you and I can go before those two, and you can come right out and prove everything I say and make her admit it. His excitement, which had flamed high for a moment, died into sudden ashes. There were a few facts bearing upon his own relation to this blackmailing, which he preferred to remain in blessed obscurity. And Gladys's idea of exposing Cordelia would almost surely drag these facts forth from their protecting shadows. For your own sake, we dare not try that plan, he said. If we accuse her of blackmail, we are certain to start Mr. Plimpton asking the question, on what grounds was she able to extort blackmail? That would lead straight to your, uh, unfortunate experience and the child. If we were to force Mr. Plimpton into learning this, no, that plan will not do. I should say not, Gladys breathed in alarm. Have you thought of any other method? No. Have you thought of anything? Yes, but not a plan that would be immediately practicable. What is it? He smiled. As your lawyer... I think it wiser that you should not know. Then you will always have the plea of innocence. Besides, I do not wish to use this method until all other methods have failed. There is an element of danger in it. It might possibly involve all of us unpleasantly. But I will use it, if necessary. And I think as your lawyer and your friend, I can guarantee you that in time, Mr. Plimpton will be paying his attention to you. He stood up. Her eyes were sparkling. I'm glad that we have had this understanding, he went on, and that we are now partners. I have just one further suggestion. The opportunity, it may even come as an emergency, may arise at any moment. I think I may say without conceit, that I have had more experience than you in handling sudden situations. I suggest, therefore, that you watch me and be ready at all times to follow my lead and support my actions and statements. I'll go even further than making this suggestion. I ask that you consent to its being a part of our agreement. I agree, she cried, and gladly. They shook hands upon this fact. During the moment that he held her hands and gazed down into her eager face, a voice within him, not the voice of emotion, but perhaps that of cold, practical reason, once again whispered that Gladys possessed everything which the great world admires, and that he had only to stretch out his hand and take her. Gladys was still talking with eager animation of this new alliance and its hopes, as she accompanied Mr. Franklin to the piazza on his way to his car. She was so engrossed that she did not see Mitchell sitting on the porch with Francois, and was startled when he stood up. She flushed, for she suddenly recalled the letter he had compelled her to write, and his forcing her to promise to relinquish all aspirations to Jerry. Then she stared at him defiantly. "'Mr. Franklin is my lawyer,' she announced to him, and we have just been discussing a matter of business. 
Without waiting for any response to this, she introduced the two men. They greeted each other without embarrassment, with equally matched ease, no restraint in their manner over the fact that one had so recently been a servant, and over the fact that so recently they had sat face to face, all expression masked, while the lawyer had made a veiled proposal. Franklin spoke of his pleasure in learning of the change in Mitchell's fortunes, and wished him prosperity in his new venture, and in his proper station in life. Mitchell thanked the other for his good wishes. Their talk ran on for a minute or more. Its substance was of no consequence. The talk of men who are using words to hide their thoughts. While they thus stood face to face, with no apparent purpose beyond this courteous chatting, each was swiftly remeasuring and revaluing the other. They were rivals in love, but it was not as such that they were now considering one another, as rivals each regarded the other lightly. Mitchell had guessed Franklin's intentions toward Cordelia. He did not regard Franklin as the really dangerous contender. Jerry Plimpton was that. As for Franklin, he did not even know of Mitchell's proposal. Cordelia had kept the oath she had given herself and had let slip no whisper of the insult he had offered her. Rather, they studied each other as instinctive opponents, and in their hundred seconds of well-bred small talk, each altered his previous estimate. Franklin judged Mitchell to be less formidable than he had formerly thought him. He had learned from Gladys the amount she had been paying Mitchell as hush money, and he could but set a man down as a mental weakling or a coward who took so little when he had power to take so much. But for all that, instinct warned him that here was a man who might still prove dangerous. Mitchell's concern, while he studied his rival, was of a very different order. Despite Cordelia's assurance to him, there had persisted in him a fear that she might have unconsciously let fall some fragment of Gladys's secret from which the whole had been reconstructed, and that she had thereby become the innocent tool by which Franklin was enabled to extract blackmail from Gladys. But Franklin's look, and more especially Gladys's cordial manner to the lawyer, dissipated this fear. Gladys would never feel such eager friendship for a man who had become a menace who was extorting her money. Mitchell was relieved that he had been mistaken. But though he acquitted Franklin of guilt in this matter, he felt no increase of confidence in the man. At parting, the two men shook hands pleasantly, perfunctorily, like casual Sunday afternoon acquaintances. But when Franklin had gone, Mitchell turned to Gladys with his cool, tantalizing smile. Francois had been led away by his governess during the scene with Franklin. Just what might have been the nature of your business with the legal gentleman, Gladys, my dear, he inquired. My business with him is none of your business, she snapped. You are forgetting, my dear, he returned pleasantly, that your business is always my business. This is not, and I shan't tell you. Oh, yes, you will. He regarded her meditatively with his amiable smile. Perhaps it was Cordelia's presence in his mind but a few moments before, as the possible unconscious instrument of Franklin, that prompted his next question. Was your business concerning Miss Marlowe? It was not. 
But Gladys's swift flush was a confession. So, your business was concerning Miss Marlowe. Hmm. Now, just what could be the nature of that business? Let's think. He was silent for almost a minute. Gladys, your greatest interest in Miss Marlowe is connected with Jerry Plimpton. Jerry Plimpton. That's it. She did not respond. But her angry flush was again answer enough. He spoke sharply. Gladys, to oblige me, you are not going to interfere with Miss Marlowe. From the interest you take in Cordelia Marlowe, one might think you were in love with her yourself. This outburst was no more than the unpremeditated reaction of her anger. But instantly she saw the possibilities that lay in her words. Oh, isn't that just too rich? What a story that will make. My ex-butler in love with the proud Cordelia. Won't Cordelia just love it when that story gets around to her? Mitchell perceived how humiliating such a story would be to Cordelia, how utterly disastrous to him if started prematurely. But he gave no sign to Gladys's gleeful spite that it had accidentally hit the bull's eye. You will start no such story. Not if you have any regard for your own happiness, he warned her in a low voice. I do admire Miss Marlowe, but my only interest in her affair with Mr. Plimpton is for her to have a fair chance to get him if she decides that he is the man she really wants, and I'm going to see that she gets it, even though I may privately think Mr. Plimpton is not the right man. A fair chance, without any complications, any tricks, from you. That's why I made you write him that letter. Now, I believe I have made myself perfectly plain. Never before had he spoken to her with such intensity. His present force, his motives, may have had their origin in that quixotism he had confessed to Cordelia. He loved her deeply, but... He desired her happiness so greatly that he could fight against himself and on the side of the rival she preferred. Gladys was, for the moment, taken aback by his grim force, but she was too rebelliously angry, too engrossed in herself, to question that intensity's significance. "'I'm tired of your always interfering with me,' she flared at him. "'I'm not going to stand it any longer.' I'm going ahead and do just as I please. If you try any game, Gladys, he continued in the same low, even voice, eyes straight into hers, I'll be sitting in that game, and I warn you now that I'll be holding the highest card. I may not play it till I get good and ready, but don't you ever forget that I'll be holding that card. Though she was furious, her next words came in a whisper. Oh, I know what you mean. You've threatened to play it often enough. Francois, but other people now also hold that card, and it's not worth so much. Besides, if any one of you dares play that card, it's then not worth a cent to any of you. That's what I've been telling you this long while and advising you to go ahead and play that card yourself. That 
particular card. But I'm not saying whether I'm now referring to that card or some other card. What other card can there be? I'm not saying. I'm just telling you I hold the highest card and advising you to behave. She glared at him in baffled puzzlement, then burst out. What will you take, how much, to clear out of my life forever? Leave me alone. His smile came slowly back. There is a certain price I might ask. You just spoke of what a delicious story it would make if it were known that Gladys Norworth's former butler were in love with Cordelia Marlowe. Don't you think it would make an even more delicious story if Miss Norworth were to announce her coming marriage to the said former butler? You, you wouldn't dare ask such a thing. And you, my dear, you wouldn't dare refuse. Her face was pale, blank. Never before had he gone so far as to suggest such a price. He laughed softly. Don't worry, Gladys, dear. I'm not going to ask you. You should know that I know you so well that the only terms on which I'd consider the proposition of being endowed with thee and all thy worldly goods would be with thee left out. I rather fancy that the price I will require for clearing out will be a very great deal more than that and a very great deal less. In fact, I can give you this fairly positive assurance. Some day I shall go, and when I go, I shall not require the price of a penny for myself. But when the account is thus settled, I am very sure that you, if you still had your choice, would vastly prefer to have paid by giving your former butler both your fortune and yourself. I believe that's all I can think of just now, my dear, and if you don't mind excusing me, I'll see if I can't find Francois. With a smile of ironic courtesy, he strolled away, leaving her cursing furiously in choking whispers. He was pervaded with grim satisfaction. As he had told Cordelia, he had an old and long bill against Gladys, and he was missing no opportunities for exacting small payments upon account. End of chapter 21